Would you pray with me, please? Father in heaven, thank you for blessing America. And oh, Father, we pray for our country. We pray, Father, that you keep her close to you. Please, Father, our leaders, our government, our officials, all of which makes America who she is, us in this room, please, Father, may we be ultimately on our knees before you and may we take the blessings of this great country that you've given us and use them, Father, to love you with all our heart, all our soul, all our might, and to love others as ourselves, please. We love you, and in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Good morning. Please turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 21. Acts 21. We're in the 20s, and there's only 28 chapters in Acts. All right. You know, I was thinking as I was standing there watching the flag and feeling my pride for America, there must have been something similar to that going on in Paul's mind as he went to Jerusalem. For a Jew, as Paul is, was, to go to Jerusalem, I wonder what it must have, must have been going through his mind and heart. My country, Tizavi, land where my fathers died, especially when he goes there knowing that hardship and arrest and trouble lie ahead. Boy, it must have been some mixed emotional moments for Paul. There's a slide I've got as a point of reference. You see on the screen a, a review of some key dates or events that we've covered so far in Acts. Just to give us our standing again. Where are we in time? It's about the year 58 A.D. And so it's been some 30 years since Jesus left those disciples on the Mount of Olives staring up after Him as He ascended. Thirty years since that incredible Pentecost event ten days later when God changed His address, moving from Herod's spectacular temple and into the hearts of His people. It's been about 25 years since Jesus turned Paul's world upside down on the Damascus Road. Remember? Giving Paul his assignment his call, really, calling Paul to in turn turn everyone else's world upside down by being Jesus' witness to Gentiles and Jews alike. And our dear brother Paul, he's got to be, doesn't he, a, a, a bit weary of it all. Indeed, we, we've seen signs, we've talked about some signs already of this already. Perhaps a, perhaps a better word is impatient especially with his own people, the Jews. But whether showing signs of wear and tear and or a bit impatient to reach the finish line, Paul continues fulfilling his call, undaunted, pressing forward, even in the face of certain hardship in Jerusalem and beyond. Now this morning, when he first gets to Jerusalem, at least when we talk about him first getting to Jerusalem, it actually starts out quite well. We'll see next week it's merely the calm before the storm. But this morning, so far so good. The story Luke gives us is an encouraging introduction to Paul's arrival 
to Jerusalem. So let's check it out, shall we? Your Bibles are open to Acts chapter 21. I'll begin reading in verse 17. When we arrived at Jerusalem, the brothers received us warmly. The next day, Paul and the rest of us went to see James. This is Jesus' brother, James. Went to see James and all the elders were present. Paul greeted them and reported in detail what God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. When they heard this, they praised God. Then they said to Paul, You see, brother, how many thousands of Jews have believed, and all of them are zealous for the law. They have been informed that you teach all the Jews who live among the Gentiles to turn away from Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or live according to our customs. What shall we do? They will certainly hear that you have come. So do what we tell you. There are four men with us who have made a vow, probably a Nazarite vow that you can read about in Numbers 6. Take these men, join in their purification rites, and pay their expenses so that they can have their heads shaved. Then everybody will know there is no truth in these reports about you but that you yourself are living in obedience to the law. As for the Gentile believers, we have written to them our decision that they should abstain from food sacrificed to idols, from blood, from the meat of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. You remember that from Acts 15. The next day, Paul took the men and purified himself along with them. Then he went to the temple to give notice of the date when the days of purification would end and the offering would be made for each of them. This is the very Word of God. Amen? Amen. Now, at first look, this story may seem very, very unlike the Apostle Paul. Did any of you think that as you were reading about James' little plan with me this morning? I thought it this week. And here's why. I mean, Paul, in several of his letters, no more so than in Galatians and Romans especially, but in several of his letters, Paul, he really goes after those who believe that they are justified before God by the works of the law. Right? Paul, he, he really gets in the face of those who rely on obeying the works of the law as their passport into the kingdom of God. Paul says things like, all who rely on observing the works of the law are under a curse. Paul likens being under the law to slavery. Paul says that he himself is not under the law in 1 Corinthians 9.20. And like we just mentioned when we were reading, we remember right when that very volatile issue of, of circumcision and obedience to the law for Gentiles came to a head in Acts 15, right? When James, the head of the church, had to step in and decide on behalf of the church that Gentiles did not need to be circumcised. And we could go, I could go on and on with examples from Paul's letters where Paul, you just feel from the language that he uses, it's quite pointed He's shouting almost, the works of the law do not justify anyone before God. And he literally rings from the man, Gentiles are not 
required to do the works of the law to become followers of Christ. These are two main passionate themes of the Apostle Paul. So it's no surprise, really, that some might conclude from all that that Paul is simply anti-law. Pro-grace, pro-faith, pro-belief, but anti-law. After all, Paul proclaims more than once, the righteous shall live by faith and not by works of the law. If that is indeed the case with Paul, however, if he is indeed anti-law, then what on earth is Paul doing here in Acts 21, agreeing to do these law things, agreeing to hold up the law? And did you catch it? He's not only helping others uphold the law, these four guys taking their Nazarite vow, that's bad enough. But did you catch from the passage this morning why it is that Paul agrees with James' little plan that we just read about? Allow me to paraphrase parts of this story. James says, hey Paul, we have some concerned members here in the Jerusalem church. Jewish Christians in particular. And our concerned members, they've heard rumors and reports about you. They strongly suspect that you are out and about flitting around the world preaching and teaching that Jews should turn away from Moses and the law. Jewish Christians shouldn't circumcise their kids. They shouldn't any longer Live according to the Jewish customs outlined in Torah. You're telling them to go and eat bacon. Now, we know, Paul, that's not what you're saying. So here's the plan. There's these four guys about to take a vow, according to number six. So, what you'll do, Paul, you sponsor these guys publicly. And you even pay for it out of your own pocket. And not only that, you too purify yourself according to the law as part of your support and sponsorship of these four Jewish Christians. And then, here's the plan. When everyone sees you doing all of this according to the law, everyone will know by your action that you're not telling Jews to stop obeying the law. It's brilliant. Instead, Paul, when you do this, You'll show our concerned members. You'll show these Jewish Christians. And here's the kicker for us this morning that we need to deal with and grapple with, my friends. And I'll stop paraphrasing now and I'll give you word for word from Acts 21. James says to Paul, Then everybody will know there is no truth to these reports about you, but that you yourself are living in obedience to the law. Oh, Paul, it'll be great. What do you say? Now, wait a minute. How can Paul be so against the law in Galatians and Romans and through many of his letters, but still himself be living in obedience to the law? Isn't that horribly inconsistent? Is Paul talking out of both sides of his mouth? All you who live under the law are cursed. But watch me as I prove that I myself am living in obedience to the law. Huh. How can that be? And the answer, my friends, 
is context, context, context. Both context in history and context in Scripture. You know, the older I get, the more I study as far as understanding Scripture goes. I wonder, I wonder if there's any more important interpretive principle than always check the context. Or Scripture informs Scripture. Because we know it's consistent because God is consistent. Amen? And here's how context comes to our rescue into this seeming inconsistency and fits it all together, in my opinion. First, in Paul's letters, you check the context. When Paul's letters, when Paul shouts out about the law, he is not against the law itself. He's against how the law is being interpreted and used. And that is so important that we understand this. It makes all the difference, my friends. We so often take the easy way out by saying, Old Testament law, bad. New Testament grace, good. Because there's no way that rules and grace can somehow coexist. Well, that certainly makes it easier to explain, I suppose. Gives us nice little categories and systematic theological boxes to put it in. But the problem is, it makes it unbiblical. And maybe that should concern us just a little, don't you think? Paul is not anti-law. He is not against obedience. Are you kidding me? Read his letters. He constantly urges his people to obey. Constantly. He clarifies all the time when he speaks against a wrong use of the law. It doesn't mean the law itself is bad. Romans 7, after Paul describes how how we Christians have been released from the law, Paul immediately adds, what shall we say then? Is the law sin? Certainly not, Paul says. The law is holy. Again, what Paul simply cannot stomach is how some Jews, and it's only some, don't ever forget it's only some when you read your Bible, you'll be guilty of prejudice or historical inaccuracy at worst, or at best. Some Jews want to use the law to justify themselves before God. Paul can't stomach that, that's wrong. And he can't stomach how some Jews want to require Gentiles to use the law the same way, to justify them. And to this use of the law, Paul says, certainly not. So let me give you an illustration. It's like if I came to you with this fantastic gift. Okay? Let's say you're turning 16 tomorrow. And you come out to the garage, and we pull off the sheet, and the gift you've been given is a cherry red Lamborghini. My son gets his permit tomorrow. He's not here this morning because he's at that class. So when he listens online, Ben, this is an illustration only. Don't get your hopes up. Now, I think most, if not all 16-year-olds, shoot, any-year-olds, especially guys maybe, although I don't know, quite a few ladies might like a cherry red Lamborghini too, all of us would say, whoa, that gift is awesome, right? Thanks. Even if you hated it, you'd sell it and, you know, Now, what if you in turn took the Lamborghini and used it to rob a bank? Does that make the car bad? Of course not. And this is the same 
thing with the law. God gave us, I don't know if those stones that Moses wrote on were cherry red, but God gave us Torah, His guide. And it is an awesome gift. Praise God He gave it to us or we'd be running around not knowing what in the world to do. It's an amazing, wonderful, in Paul's words, holy, awesome gift. But if we take that gift and we use it in a way God didn't intend, like attempting to justify ourselves or use it as a hammer to condemn others before God, we misuse the gift. And it's the misuse of the law that's bad, not the law. Does that make sense? Second, you may find it helpful, I know I do, to note what many have noted, Torah has three parts. You can, it's been said that each of the 613 requirements of Torah can be put into three camps. Camp number one, there are those laws that deal with temple practices, right? Those of you who have read through the Bible in the year or whatever, those classes, are you get to those parts and you go, oh my goodness, they will never end. All those sacrificial and priestly requirements, right? Camp number two, laws that deal with morality and ethics. Ten Commandments, for example. And then camp number three, laws that deal with Jewish cultural practices, like the kosher laws, what you can or can't eat. Now, you might get into an argument or a debate with different scholars as to which camp a particular law belongs. But these three major parts are recognized by many biblical scholars. Now, Paul often uses the phrase when he's speaking or writing about how the law is or isn't being used, he often uses the phrase, works of the law. Well, a fascinating thing happened when a shepherd boy threw a stone and the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered. 50, 60 years ago, we found this very same phrase, works of the law, in some of those Essene scrolls. And it's the only time we found the phrase, works of the law, in history, in any writings outside of the Bible or, of course, Bible commentaries. Well, a very interesting, insightful thing, when we look how those Essenes used the phrase, works of the law, whenever it was used in those Dead Sea Scrolls, It was used exclusively in the context of Jewish cultural practices or rules for living in that particular Jewish Essene community. The phrase is never used in the scrolls to refer to all Torah or all the law as a whole or all obedience. It's only used to describe how to live as an Essene Jew. Hmm. So the question is, is Paul using an Essene phrase, works of the law, to describe those parts of the law that make you Jewish? That first and third camp of Torah you see on the screen that we just mentioned. When Paul says the works of the law don't justify you, is he referring to those parts of Torah that make you Jewish? Things like wearing tassels on the corner of your robes, not cutting the corners of your hair, All those kosher laws, what to eat, not to eat, and the like, and even temple practices. Now, I will say that fits and helps us show that Paul's complete message in Scripture when it comes to the law is consistent. Because if that's right, what Paul is saying is that Gentiles do not need to become Jewish 
in order to enter the kingdom of God. And we all know that's true, yes? They had a problem with that then. Because until first century, until the cross, this is unprecedented. The Jews are God's chosen people. And Paul tells his audience that by telling some Jews who need to be told that the works of the law don't justify you or anyone before God. And he tells them it's not enough that you're Jewish. Jews, your Jewishness doesn't save you. And since the cross of Christ, being Jewish is no longer a requirement for being part of God's chosen people. And Paul says to those particular first century Jews who think and act otherwise, stop insisting that Gentiles become Jewish in order to belong to God's people. And what Paul leaves fully intact then is the part of the law that deals with morality and ethics. Things like don't murder, don't commit adultery, honor your mother and father, no other gods, love your neighbor, and the like. Of course we still need to obey those laws. We all know that. We just don't need to obey them in order to justify ourselves before God. And we certainly don't need to become Jews in order to be saved. To suggest otherwise is a misuse of the law. Now, back to Acts 21. Paul's free to do what he does. Paul doesn't hesitate in one respect, because there is no misuse of the law in play here in Acts 21. No one is suggesting that these four men or Paul or anyone is being justified before God by the law. No one is suggesting that any Gentile needs to become Jewish. As far as we tell, no Gentiles are involved in the plan at all. In fact, James reaffirms that Gentiles are not required to become Jewish when he assures Paul in verse 25 that that decision made in Acts 15 about circumcision still stands. And because none of those misuses of the law are in play here, Paul says, sure, James, wow, what a great idea. No problem, let's do it. And he does. Paul willingly goes along with the plan. Now, why does he go along with the plan? First, to witness. To witness to Jewish Christians in particular, these concerned members in the Jerusalem church, that he, Paul, lives in obedience to the law. See, remember, Paul is a Jew. And so he does the Jewish thing. That's kind of redundant. If you're a Jew, could you do anything other than what a Jew would do, since you're a Jew doing it? You, that's the chicken before the egg thing. You puzzle with that. So he does the Jewish thing by purifying himself and sponsoring these four men taking a Nazarite vow. Now, Paul certainly wouldn't require a Gentile to do this. Wouldn't ask a Gentile to do this, I suspect. But as a Jew, Paul does the Jewish thing. See, Gentiles don't need to become Jews to be saved. But Jewish Christians don't need to become Gentiles to be saved either. And I wonder if sometimes we forget that. And everyone, Jew and Gentile, needs to be constantly on the lookout about how they interpret and use God's amazing gift of the law, how we use obedience. Do we use it in the right way? That is, as a witness, as an expression of love to God and others, not as a means of justifying ourselves before God. Jesus took care of that for us. Amen? Second, Paul ultimately goes along with James' plan for one other huge reason. I mean... 
Why does he want to witness he's living in obedience to the law? In a word, unity. And we see both of these themes of witness and unity in Paul's first letter to the Corinthians when he writes, Though I am free and belong to no man, I make myself like a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. To the Jews, I become like a Jew to win Jews. And I think everyone reading this in first century laugh now because Paul is a Jew. <laughs> so for a Jew to become like a Jew, I think Paul's chuckling a little bit as he writes that. To the Jews, I become like a Jew to win Jews. To those under the law, I became like one under the law, though I myself am not under the law, so as to win those under the law. To those not having the law, Gentiles, I became like one not having the law, though I am not free from God's law, but am under Christ's law. More on that in a minute. Why does he do it? So as to win those not having the law. To win as many as possible for Christ. That's the witness. And right along it, you can see it as Paul grapples in that passage and his whole ministry, really, with his deep, driving desire that everyone, Jewish and Gentile, could somehow praise and worship God, could somehow get along together in unity. Whether they have the law like the Jews or they don't have the law like the Gentiles, we're all brothers and sisters in Christ. And that's Paul's passion in his ministry in the first century. And the basis in Christ for that unity that Paul is after, for our unity, regardless of what nationality we're from. That's what Paul means when he says he's under Christ's law, even as himself a Jew, Jewish Christian. What's Christ's law? You know this. Some say Paul's talking about the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. And that's a great answer. I'm with that. Others, including me, would add this. Even beyond the gospel, Paul, in my opinion, is talking about how Jesus interpreted and used God's Torah. He summed it up, here it is again, in Shema. He summarized God's law. He said all of Scripture rests on this. We are to love God with all our heart, all our soul, all our might, and all our mind. And we are to love our neighbor as ourselves. That's Christ's law. Let me ask you a question that someone recently asked me. And when they asked me this question, it revealed even a subconscious you know, uh, inclination against the law that I had in me. They asked me this question. I'll ask you the question. Do you as Gentiles, if you're all Gentiles, I don't know if someone's Jewish here, you don't get to answer the question. <laughs> do you as Gentiles, do you still obey Torah? See, I hesitated before answering that question because my knee jerk is, no, no longer Torah. Great. See, I don't hesitate anymore on that question. If you ask me today whether I as a Gentile still obey Torah, my answer would be yes, absolutely, as interpreted by Jesus. That's what he did when he came to fulfill the law. He interpreted it correctly for the first time all the way correctly. And he lived it perfectly so that he could give us the spirit so we could do it too. 
by loving God with all our heart, soul, mind, and might, and loving our neighbor as ourselves. We obey the law as interpreted by Jesus. We love. Amen? All right, what to make of all this? Two questions or challenges for us this morning before we go. First, how far would you go to witness to everyone that you are living in obedience to Jesus? How far would you go? Paul went a long way. And second, how far would you go for the sake of unity in the church? You know, Paul was under no obligation to help these four men. None. Not by the law, not by otherwise. He didn't have to sponsor these guys. And not only does he help them, he pays for it. And we tend to read through that as a so what. Well, let me tell you about the tab that Paul likely had to pay. This is a pretty big so what. Listen to what Paul, from the book of Numbers, had to buy each of these four men. A year-old male lamb, a year-old ewe lamb, a ram, and each of these animals without spot, blemish, or defect. Those are extras, and extra costs extra. A grain offering, a drink offering, a basket of unleavened bread, to say nothing what the barber charged for shaving their heads, and nothing of the fee charged by the Sadducees and the chief priests for performing the ceremony. Wow, that's a barn full. It had to set Paul back a bit financially. But the witness of his obedience and the unity of the church was so important to him that Paul doesn't hesitate. Now, what about us? Do we hesitate when our witness or promoting unity costs us? Paul didn't. And Jesus certainly didn't either. How far, how far would you go to witness obedience to Jesus? How far would you go to promote and maintain unity in the church? What would we give up? Maybe I should be asking, what wouldn't we do or give up for witness and unity? On the unity issue. For example, even though you don't have to, to earn God's favor, to win salvation, even though you don't have to, do you come Sundays to church or to Sunday school class or whatever that the church family is doing, not because you have to, not because what you'll get out of it, but do you come simply to show your support and unity with others? Now, there's a radical idea. Even if you don't like all of the music, even if you don't like the pastor who always seems like he's yelling at you. I love you guys. I, my passion can so much sometimes be, uh, come through as anger. I'm not angry with you. Or you don't like the message. Or it's too long. <laughs> or it's too short. For some... Or what are we doing with these candles? Are we Catholic? And who picked the color of those choir robes? Why are they wearing choir robes? So formal. 
Makes me feel uncomfortable. It's like when that nun was hitting my... How come we don't do communion more? How come we don't do altar calls more? How come we don't do them less? Whatever. These are things I've all heard and more. Maybe you too. We certainly have our opinions, don't we, on the best way to do praise and worship. Amen? Well, how willing are you, like Paul, to go and do something someone else's way in humility just to help encourage unity? You see, if I'm Paul, I might be inclined to say, hey, James got a better idea. Why don't you pay for it? Why don't you do it? I don't have to do this. What will my Gentile friends think? Paul take a risk there? At miscommunicating to his miscommunicating to his Gentile friends. I'm sorry, that's just not my thing, James. I, you know, I'm not going to get anything out of it. I don't think that's the best thing for these four men to be doing. In fact, why don't you go get them and I'll tell them so. Or if I'm Paul after the ceremony. Maybe I grumble about it with my friends. I get looped together. I get these other elders that have come with me. And you know what I do? I'll build a coalition. Don't tell anybody. But I'll build a coalition of people. And I'm going to help change what I don't like once and for all in this church. So easy for the devil to gain a foothold. Good thing I'm not Paul. Are you? What about you? What about us? Will we do all we can to witness obedience to Jesus? Will we do all we can for the sake of unity in the church? Paul did. Just like Jesus. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I thank you for a week and a Friday coming when we can celebrate and thank you for the blessing of what it is to be American. And Father, amidst the fireworks and the music and the tears and the gratefulness, would you also birth in us as you birthed our nation a strong desire to take everything you've given us and to give it back to you and to others in following obediently and witnessing our obedience to Jesus' interpretation and use of your marvelous law to love you with all our heart, all our soul, all our might, all our mind, and to love our neighbor as ourselves. Please, Father. Please. And Father, amidst and in a culture that presses upon us rights, our rights, an individualistic opinion, oh Father, would you work those edges off of us and give us the humility to submit to others for the sake of unity. Would you do that, Father, here at West Bowles Community Church and, Father, at the Capital C Church around the world. Help us, Father, to in fact witness by our unity with brothers and sisters even when we can't agree on every last detail. Please, Father, help our witness by helping our unity. Help our witness. Help our unity. Please. We love you. 
and ask all of this in the matchless name of Jesus Christ, our Messiah. And all God's people said, Amen. God bless you and God bless America. Amen. We'll see you next week. Have a great week, you guys.